Morning, everybody. How's it going this morning? Good. Glad to see you guys. Let's say good morning to our friends over in the family room in the block. Glad you guys are here. It's awesome. You guys have some good stuff going to the family room today. You are going to have some baptisms today like we did over here last week. So hope you have a great celebration of that today. Um, so thanks for being here. I'm glad you guys are here. Everyone doing good? Good. good. You look marvelous. Oh, thank you. Oh, you like this one? Okay, that's good. Um, hey, I got some good news for you. Would you like to hear good news? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes when I stand up, I got to say, hey, we're having a transition. Someone's leaving like what, a couple weeks ago. Lisa Apple, we announced she was leaving and uh, going back with her family to North Carolina, which is great for them, but sad for us. But uh, I want to tell you about someone coming this time instead of someone leaving. That's kind of a cool thing. So for about the last seven or eight, nine months, something like that, I've been talking with a friend of mine about coming and joining our team. And, uh, and he's finally said yes. And some of you will know him. His name is John Bowles. How about that? Yeah, so now some of you, some of you are, are new here in the last 10 years. You're like, oh, it's John Bowles. I don't know who that is. So let me show you his picture. That's not his. There it is. There it is. Well, that's the picture he sent me. Every, everybody wants to be a Brad. Oh, there he is. Okay, that's the real, that's the real story right there. <laughs> All right, so here's the deal. A little bit of background information if you're newer with us at Lakeside. So in 1987, when we started Lakeside Church, uh, this young guy who's 19 years old uh, came to me. He was brand newly married. So he and his wife, both 19, he came to me and he said, hey, I'd like to help with, you know, what's going on at Lakeside. I said, man, you're in. Come, come on, let's go. So he helped us in all kinds of ways. They both helped us in all kinds of ways. And after a while, he kept saying to me, I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to go into ministry. I said, you have dropped out of college. Go to college. And then come back to me and tell me you want to go into ministry. He goes, okay. So, so after a while, he goes to college, goes to Multnomah School of the Bible up in Portland, gets his degree. And then by the time he was finishing his degree, we had an opening for a full-time worship leader. And so I said, hey, John, why don't you come back and be our worship leader at Lakeside, and we'll pay you for it, and it'll be great. And so he did, and he spent the next seven years with us uh, over in our old facility and also in this facility, and then one day he came to me, and uh, he said, you know, the Lord's doing something new, which is pastor talk for, I'm leaving. <laughs> he said, the, 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 the Lord's doing something new, and I said, no, he's not, <laughs> which is pastor talk for, if you leave, I'll break your arm. No, it's not. It's not really where it goes. But that is sort of how the conversation went. And uh, sure enough, the Lord moved him and his family from here to Jackson, Michigan. And they've considered themselves for the last 10 years Michiganaries to Jackson, Michigan. And they've done a fantastic job. John has served for most of those 10 years as the co-pastor of this church called Westwinds, has done a fantastic job there brought really great testimony to Christ in that community, served the community, loved the people of the community, and has done really a fantastic job. And last September, and John and I have kept our friendship going over these years, and last September, in fact, some of you will remember he came back and joined us for our 25th anniversary a few years ago. And uh, last September, I just got this, I think, prompting from God to say, give John a call. So I called up John. I said, hey, John, I think the Lord's doing a new thing. He said, maybe he is. So we started a series of conversations. And so Pastor Sean and I have gone back to Michigan, and we brought John out here a couple of times, and we've been having a conversation for the last several months about 
What would it look like if you were to come back and join our team? And so in January, we invited him. We said, you know, we're, we've already made our decision. We want you to come. And he made the decision and his wife made the decision that God is actually leading them to come. We've waited for all these months to announce it because we wanted him to be able to announce it at his church at the best timing for them. And so they're announcing it this, this morning at their church in Michigan. We're announcing it the same day to let you know that God's coming back. And he's going to serve with us. Now, he's not going to serve in the leader, the worship leader role. That's Josh's position. Josh is doing a fantastic job with that. We're not, we're not giving him the boot to bring John in or anything like that. John's role will be a leader over outreach ministries and what we call upreach ministries or worship arts and, uh, and over the, our communication department. And he's going to team up with Sean and myself, and the three of us will share leadership for Lakeside Church. Now, I'm going to give you some more information about that in a little bit in our huddle time. If you're here in the auditorium, we're going to have a huddle after this gathering, and you can stay behind, and you can listen. I'll give you some more information about that. Uh, if you're in the family room, you're, we're going to give you a huddle for this next week because you've got baptisms going on today. So next week, we'll do a special huddle for the family room and just kind of lay out what's going on and what it looks like and how you can be involved, all right? So here in this room, I'll give you some time to make that all work, and then we'll, we'll talk that through. But first, we're going to look through Scripture. Good? All right, let's, let's pray before we do that. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Uh, we've even talked recently, Lord, about in the hardest things that come, you are good. In the greatest fun things that come, you are good. And so I'm grateful for your character. I'm grateful that you are rock solid. I'm grateful that you never waver. You never move away from us. You, you are always with us. And so thank you for that. And Lord, as you were with us, you pour out your love on us. You pour out your generosity on us. So thank you for all those things. Lead us today in our conversation. Lead us in uh, revealing yourself to us and how you want to shape us and what you have for us. We come to you, Father, through Jesus. Amen. So I believe God has things for you, and I believe God wants things for you. I know when you come to God, you want things from Him. A lot of times when you're praying, you're like, God, I want this, or I want that, or I need this, or I need that, or those kinds of things. We have wants from God, but God has wants for you. And as a pastor of this church and trying to keep my heart lined up and tuned up with God, I want some things for you. Uh, the, the whole nature of this series we're in called Wholehearted is this. I want you to live a wholehearted life. There are a lot of things that come into our lives and they, and they lock us up, they cramp us up, they keep us from being everything God wants us to be. They, they diminish our freedoms and we end up sometimes living a half-hearted life, sort of a half of a life or less sometimes. I want you to live a wholehearted life. I want you to be free to be who God has made you to be. I want you to be free from the constraints of fear and the constraints of shame in your life. I want you to be free to love with a whole heart. I want you to be free to live with the joy and the hope of God's Spirit in your life. That's what I want for you, to live wholehearted. But for all of us, something gets in the way of that. And for me, that thing is perfectionism. I've known since I was a child, that at least as a teenager, I've known that I struggle with pride, and I kind of felt like my greatest sin challenge was pride. But as I've kind of reflected on my life over the last couple of years, I've realized that that pride shows itself, and that sin shows itself in this thing called perfectionism. 
And as I've been learning about it, as I've been reflecting on what that looks like in my life, I've been, t- I've been taking notes. I am, a, I am a journal writer. I've been writing in a journal since I was in high school, off and on. In high school, mostly off, a little bit on. But, you know, since that, more and more consistently as I go along. And uh, I've been writing a lot about this journey of understanding what perfectionism is in my life and what it looks like and what are the implications in my life and in the lives of other people around me and how does it keep me from living a wholehearted life. Today I want to give you some thoughts that I'm calling confessions of an imperfectionist. And maybe I should have... Maybe I should have titled it a little bit more straight up, Confessions of a Perfectionist, because that's who I am. But honestly, I'm trying to become an imperfectionist. I don't know if that's worthwhile or what, but that's the journey that I'm on. And I want to share some confessions with you about what that looks like. And I want to help, I hope that this helps you move forward in a wholehearted life. Frankly, I have no idea how this will land on you. When I normally come to you and I say, hey, let's look at the Bible. Let's open up the Bible and let's look at it. You know, turn to John chapter 3 and I say, this is what John chapter 3 says. And I give it to you. I'm like, I'm very confident that's what God says. And you can take it and live it out. But today I'm going to give you a lot of what I'm processing in my own life from the things that God's word says to me. And I don't know how it will land on you. I don't know how it will come out. uh, It's pretty raw because I'm going to read some journal entries that I sort of, when I wrote them, thought they were for me. And now I'm going to pull them out and let you in on them. And so it may be a little raw. I told the people yesterday at 5 o'clock, I said, you guys are going to get it the most raw because it's probably going to be the most emotional at 5 o'clock. So if you want to get it really polished up, come at 1045. (laughs) Some of you are going to leave today going, that's as polished as it gets? (laughs) I don't know. Um, But I want to invite you on a journey, and I'm hoping for you that this helps you move forward in a wholehearted life. Let me start with reading a journal entry that I wrote on December 8th of 2014, about six months ago. I wrote, I'm a perfectionist. A perfectionist is a sinner. A perfectionist judges others, often immediately and without prior information. A perfectionist hurts people around him. A perfectionist hurts the people he loves the most because of his judgmentalism. A perfectionist is self-deceived. He thinks he is way better than he is. A perfectionist has difficulty laughing, singing, dancing, and enjoying life because he can't do it perfectly. Because he fears someone else is judging him like he would be doing. A perfectionist is a Pharisee. A perfectionist may have trouble writing a book. It will never be done to his satisfaction. A perfectionist is image conscious. People need to know that he's perfect. Perfectionist is image shackled. A perfectionist manipulates people rather than engaging people. A perfectionist needs to repent, needs forgiveness, needs reformation and transformation, and needs a savior. Those are me. I wrote a note this week as I was studying and preparing for this journey with you today. I I wrote this, not part of my 
you know, past journals, but just a thought. I wrote, I can't dance. I find it hard to clap and sing at the same time. You know, so one of our worship leaders will stand up front and go, hey, you guys, this is a great song to clap on, so let's sing and let's clap. And I'm like, I'm all on board, but I'll, if I have to clap, I'm going to stop singing. Because my lips and my palms don't work at the same time. I find it hard to clap and sing. I can't dance. I find it hard to clap and sing at the same time. So for a long time, I didn't dance. I tried to protect myself from the ridicule my dancing would inspire. There was something vulnerable about dancing. But I've missed the joy of the dance in the process. Today I might call myself a recovering perfectionist. I have friends who are in AA and I love them and I'm proud of where they are in their journey and people will, you know, send me something every now and then and go, I've got, I've got 37 days of sobriety and I'm like, way to go, that's amazing, that's awesome to me. But honestly, I've never quite understood the, the, the pattern with AA where they want to describe themselves as recovering alcoholics. For, some, for someone, at, le- at least those who know Jesus and have been redeemed by Jesus, it just seems odd to me that we would define ourselves by something that used to control us. So I never quite understood that recovering alcoholic thing. And yet the more I've walked down this road of my own perfectionism, the more I realize that these temptations that grip me in the perfectionistic journey are temptations that will be with me every day for the rest of my life. I will fight them, I will stand against them, but they grip me. And so for my friends who are recovering alcoholics, I am starting to get that. You may ask, well, what is a perfectionist? Some of you know, some of you don't need a definition. Some of you are like, I, I don't really get that. What is a perfectionist? I'll tell you how I see a perfectionist. This is my description. I want to do it right. I want you to know that I do it right. I want you to approve of me for doing it right. And I want to be able to judge you when you don't do it right. I don't really want that. It's painful for me to say that. Because I want you to live free, and I want you to live wholeheartedly, and I don't want you to live with shame. But that's what perfectionism is. Those are the temptations that I live with. In another journal entry in September of 2014, I wrote, I'm afraid to unlock the door to a wholehearted life because I don't know what that life will entail, and I know I won't know how to do it right. be able to describe a little bit of my journey by reading a, <coughs> reading a journal entry that I wrote after a conversation with a good friend of mine. I have a friend, a great friend, who is also a therapist, and we were having a conversation one day, and it sort of turned into a counseling session. I don't know how that happened, but that's what happened. And after the conversation, I tried to go back and write down every word we had talked about because it was so helpful and so freeing and healing. So I want I want to read a little bit of that conversation for you. My friend said, 
Where do you think your perfectionism came from? I knew what she was driving at because she's a counselor, and I know how I know how those counselors do this. She goes, where do you think your perfectionism came from? I said, not from a need to perform. She said, did you perform out of fear? I said, I don't think so. I, I don't think I've become a perfectionist out of fear. And then the conversation went on for a while, and we went down a few different trails and pieces of the conversation. Then I came to this, and I said, I've always been attracted to people who can break the rules and not get swatted. To which she said, wow. I'm not even perfectly self-aware. I can't even do self-awareness perfectly. Then I realized that my life has often been calibrated by shame. Shame is a thing that drives a lot of perfectionism in the world. Shame drives a lot of things in this world that you wish you didn't have. Shame drives a lot of things in this world that you wish you could hide and you could get over or you could get beyond it and you just can't. as we described it last week, shame is that painful belief that you are not worthy of love or belonging. And I believe every one of us goes through that belief at some point. And when you come to a place in your life where you believe that you are not worthy of love or belonging, then you hustle for it. And the world is filled with people who are hustling for love. Hustling for value. Hustling for worth. Because shame says, perform or else. Perform or we don't think you're good enough. Perform or you'll have no value. Perform or you'll be judged. And I've not enjoyed disapproval and so I've performed. But a lot of that performance, because of shame, is because of the perfectionism that it, it develops, has been self-destructive. It keeps me from living a wholehearted life. It's not only self-destructive, but it becomes others-destructive. Perfectionism never happens in a vacuum. It touches everybody that you touch. It touches everybody that I touch. The shamed one shames others. And in my life, that has landed on the people that are closest to me. It always lands on the people that are closest to us. It lands on my wife. It has landed on my children. There's, there's people that God has strategically put in my life so that I would love them and serve them and care for them. It lands on them sometimes. 
if perfectionism is not your particular challenge, you might go, I, I don't know, really know what you're talking about. You know, can you, can you be more specific? Probably. What if I listed the ways I judge people? That would be specific. I mean, I, I judge people for how they look. I judge people for how much they weigh. I judge people for how they dress. I judge people for how intelligent they are. I judge people for what kind of job they have. I judge people for how they parent and how they spend money and how they volunteer and how they serve and lead. And I've gone to other churches on my weekends off and judged how they do church. If there's an area of life that can be judged, and I have. I thought the Bible would help me. I believe the Bible is God's book. I believe the Bible is God's written word to reveal himself to us in this world, to reveal what his heart is, what his desires are in us and for us. And I'm like, oh, surely the Bible will help. And there, you know, there are scriptures that talk about this, like there's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which most of you will know, even if you don't know where it comes from. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And it says this, this is Jesus speaking. He says, do not judge or you will be judged. Like, I know that one. And yet in my perfectionism, I'm like, oh, you don't, you're not doing it right. And I judge. And Jesus said, don't, don't judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Okay. Well, that's not all that helpful. It just tells me what I shouldn't do. It doesn't get me down the road to doing it. There's this other verse also in the Sermon on the Mount that has tripped me up for probably decades of my life. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as a young man, I'm, as a young Christ follower, I'm like, perfect, marching orders. That's what God has for me. That's what he wants me to do. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I'm like, how perfect is God? He's like, perfect, perfect. I got to be perfect, perfect. I got to be just as perfect as God is. And I start striving. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the perfect Christ follower. I'm going to be the perfect husband and the perfect father and the perfect pastor. And, the... and it's impossible. That verse has tripped me up. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's weird because the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount is that you'll never be perfect, is that you need God's grace. Nobody lives up to the standards that God has, that he lived and that he has for us. Nobody lives up to those standards. So we will all need grace. And I know that, and yet I come to that verse, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's just very, very recently that I've realized another way to translate that verse is be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. It's an idea of completion. Not because you strive for it, not because you're so good at it, not because you've been shamed into it, but be whole, because God wants you to be whole. I was like, David, I still don't know how to get that. And so my, my wanderings through Scripture, trying to figure out what this looks like in my life and how do I live a wholehearted life before God took me to Luke chapter 15. A lot of you know Luke chapter 15. It's, a, it's, a, it's three stories of lost things. There's a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son or two. 
And that, that last story, we call it the prodigal son. Somebody named it. Jesus didn't name it. Somebody named it the prodigal son. We, we, we think, and I, I thought this for the majority of my Christ-following life, I thought that that third story, the, the prodigal son, I thought it was about the younger son. You know, there's two sons, and the younger one comes to the dad and goes, hey, give me what, give me what I have coming to me. And so the father gives him his portion of the inheritance, and he goes off and wastes it. And I thought the story was all about this young kid who wasted what his father gave to him. But if you look at the context of the story and, and interpreting Scripture, as any document is, interpreting Scripture is all about context. And if you look at the context, you'll find out that the Pharisees were running around at this particular moment accusing Jesus because he was eating with the tax collectors and the people that they called sinners. And they're all bent out of shape about Jesus eating with those kinds of people. And so Jesus tells them a story, and he, and he builds up from the lost sheep to the lost coin to the lost younger son. But in reality, you find out that the story is all about the older son. See, the older son was a perfectionist. The older son lived inside the lines, but outside of his father's joy. of us are like that because shame drives us to this perfectionistic lifestyle where we say, I've got to stay inside the lines. I've got to do it right. And we stay inside the lines, but we stay outside of our Father's joy. Jesus told that story to the Pharisees. Pharisee is translated, the word Pharisee means separated one. In other words, we separate ourselves from all of the rest of you because we're perfect and you're not. Another translation of the, of the name or the word Pharisee is holier than thou. We are holier than thou or thou's, you people. That, that's, that's, what he said. that's what they were saying. We're, we're better than you because we do it right and you don't. The, the, the Pharisees were perfectionists. In fact, if you were to take any place in the gospel where you find the word Pharisee and you take that word out and you substitute the word perfectionist for it, you will not lose any of the essential meaning. In Matthew 23, where Jesus goes down a list and he excoriates those people that were teachers of the law and the Pharisees, if you just plucked out the word Pharisee and you put the word perfectionist in, you would not lose any of the essential meaning. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, or woe to you, teachers of the law and perfectionists. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. What's wrong with you? And I read those, I go, oh, he's talking to me. The prodigal son story, he's talking to me. And so I get this picture from Scripture. Jesus doesn't want me to live as a perfectionist, and yet it's, deeply rooted in my psyche. And so I want to know, is there hope? Is there any hope? If the gospel means good news, and if the gospel ends without any hope, then let's throw it away because it's not worth anything. It's only worth something if it has hope. So where's the hope for someone who's a recovering perfectionist? Where's the hope for someone who's locked up because of shame? And maybe it doesn't come out in perfectionism. Maybe it comes out in anger which often happens, or maybe it comes out in insecurities, which often happens. Where's the hope? I find hope in this verse, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. This 
verse has been meaningful to me since I was in high school. This verse, in fact, was the very, it was the text of the very first sermon that I ever preached in high school. It's like God was already showing me some things in high school but that I didn't get until here in the last year or two. Here's the hope. The Apostle Paul writes, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. The whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that you're going to take grace. It's going to require grace for you to live this life. You're not going to be able to make it because you've strived so hard to be perfect. You're not going to be able to make it because you've done so many good things. My grace is sufficient for you. See, what shame tells you in your life, what shame tells me in my life is you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not fast enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not handsome enough. You're not rich enough. You're not enough. And what Jesus says is my grace for you is enough. The psalm writer said, cease striving and know that I am God. Many of you know there's a starting point for God's grace in our lives. It comes when we respond to his gospel through Jesus. Here at Lakeside, we often talk about it in terms of the ABCs of the gospel, right? We put it on the back of the program for you. If you're newer with us and you haven't heard this, let me just kind of walk this through with you briefly. The ABCs of the gospel say, A, I admit. I admit that my life of sin has kept me separated from God. I admit that this shame that I live with has kept me separated from God. I admit that my perfectionism has kept me separated from God, whatever those things are. I admit that my sin has kept me separated from God and I need a Savior. B is believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior God has sent. That's the teaching of the church. That's the teaching of the Scripture. Jesus Christ is the only Savior that God has sent. B, I believe that. remarkable thing about God is he offers us his grace and then he lets you choose. You choose to follow Jesus by faith or not. You choose. And when you walk through that process of admitting that you need a savior and believing that Jesus is the only savior that God has sent and choosing to follow him by faith, you enter into all the grace of God that is fully sufficient for you. ABCs of faith, you can choose to follow Christ by faith today, right where you are. Let me pray. Now, a lot of you have already taken that step. You go, okay, I, I'm already a Christ follower. What's the next step for me? What do, I, what do I do with this gospel thing? What do I do to get unlocked so that I live this wholehearted life that God has for me? What do I do? The Bible says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So... Learn to walk by grace. I'm in my life constantly learning to walk by God's sufficient grace. There's an invitation from Jesus into this walkway, into this pathway of life. It's found in also the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, where Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. It's so interesting how easily we turn upside down the teachings of Scripture because we've taken that verse from Matthew chapter 7 and we've said, oh, follow the narrow way, get on the straight and narrow. And when someone says, be on the straight and narrow path, what do they mean? Work hard, do it right, stay in the box, stay in order, don't get out of line. We've turned upside down what Jesus meant by that. He didn't say, enter the narrow way by doing all the right things. That's the broad way. That's the way that everybody takes. Every major religion in the world tries to get to God by doing all the right stuff. And it's a way of destruction. It never gets you where you need to be because you can't be good enough. The narrow way is the way that few people find. It's the way of grace. Jesus says, enter into the way of grace. My grace is sufficient for you. You don't have to have it all dialed in. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to do it right. But you definitely need my grace. When you receive God's grace through the ABCs of the gospel, and then you begin to walk on that path of grace, he begins to unlock your life by the power of his grace, which is amazing. That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you unlocked by the grace of God to be free to walk a wholehearted life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I seek this for us, everyone here, both rooms, anybody who's watching the podcast, I seek for us that we would begin in your grace and that we would walk in it. I pray, Lord, that you would unlock us from the shame that has bound us up. You would set us free. You would teach us to walk with you by grace. Lord, thank you that it is enough for us. We honor you. We love you together. We worship you together. Through Jesus.